picture this. So they, the disciples had just gone out and, and done their first solo trip where they went out and did what Jesus commanded them to do without Jesus there with them. And they came back, and it says, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And that's all it says about the 12. Now, when it talks about the 70 in the next chapter, there's a little bit more of a debriefing that goes on, and we'll dig into that a little bit then. But, but the disciples had just gone out. Jesus gave them specific instructions, and then they come back, and they come back to Bethesda, or Bethsaida, depending on uh, which translation you're looking at. Bethsaida is the NIV, and um, this is a town where I think Philip and Andrew and Peter, James, and John were from, and, and it's literally Fishtown. That's the name of the town, Fishtown. So, so they're in a town that is called Fishtown, and so you get a picture of why you know, Peter, James, and John had a fishing business, and that's what Jesus called them out of when he called them to be his disciples, to follow after him. But here we're wrapping up. We're wrapping up the whole first nine chapters of Luke, and 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 bringing this to a conclusion, where where now we're going to take a turn and look like look at what it means to be a disciple, be a follower of Jesus Christ. And right here, this is the very end. Actually, the the transfiguration is kind of the the transition moment in the book of Luke to take us in a different direction, um, where Jesus's focus changes and Luke's focus changes and follows that. But here is kind of this, this, last, this last image to, to summarize what it means to be a disciple, what it looks like to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. And so imagine yourself, you're outside, they're out in the, in the villagers, they're out in the hillside or the countryside out around Bethsaida. They're not in the towns, they, they were out away from the towns. And, and this large group of people, we're going to discover it's 5,000 men, probably you know, 10 to 15,000 people in total, if not more like 20,000 women and children were, were not counted in this number. So there's this huge crowd that has assembled, and they're out sitting in, you know, I picture kind of a grassy knoll, and I get some of that from the text a little bit, this kind of grassy area. They're all seated out, seated out where it's grassy when this takes place. So Luke chapter 9, verse 10, try to picture yourself here with me in the story. Maybe you're one of the disciples, and that would be a great picture for you to, to kind of put yourself in the vantage point of one of the disciples and participating in the story this way. So, so picture yourself this morning as one of the 12, one of the 12 apostles, and what's happening in this story. I better get a timer out here. I don't want to go really, really long. And everyone said, Amen. All right, Luke chapter 9, verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he, Jesus, took them, the disciples, with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. Jesus welcomed them and the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, 
to Jesus, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. And he replied, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. 20,000 people, so like the Moda Center worth of people, are gathered around, and Jesus tells the disciples, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Now, if the same counting is considered here, so be groups of 50 men and then maybe 50 women or 50 women and a few kids, so maybe 100, 150 in a group. Have the disciples sit down in these groups of about 50 each. And the disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? So imagine this crowd, and, and the disciples had just gone out and fed the crowd, literally. And so Jesus now, taking advantage of what they had probably just heard when they're, when they're looking at the crowds, experiencing this miracle, Jesus says, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. And when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels, truly I tell you, some are standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Uh, the, the women's groups are actually going over this very same story from Matthew, not from Luke. But uh, before Becky knew that, that this is what we were going to be covering this week, she had already been praying and felt like God was leading them, the women, to this passage to study it and, and mine some of the material that's here for it. And so, women, you're going to be getting this again in a different context, different format, different points. Um, but it's really interesting how God works that way and leads, leads us to similar things. Not just my wife and I, but it happens with the worship team. It happens with others here in the church. And it's really cool how God, when he wants us to focus on something, he makes us really focus on it. 
But here we are, we're out on the hillside. We're out on the hillside with 20,000 people. We'll just use that number because it's nice and round and big. And 20,000 people just scattered around this hillside. And it's getting late in the day, and, and, it's, and it's getting towards evening, and the disciples are concerned for the people that they won't get back to town before it gets dark. They want them to be safe. There, there are uh, all sorts of unnamely, unseemly things that would happen out in the dark on some of the roads that were, were not well-traveled. And so the disciples wanted to get them back to safety, back to where they were safe. And so they said to Jesus, tell them to go, send the crowd away so they can go get some food and lodging because we're in a remote place. So the 12 were, were looking out for the best interest of the people, so they thought. Jesus had a different idea of what he was going to do. And as I was studying this, I kept getting hung up on this phrase, you give them something to eat. The absurdity of that statement to me when I think about it, so we've got the, we've got the bread here. Um, so we've washed our hands. The, the, uh, the deacons are going to wash their hands before we pass out the bread. We're going to pass out the bread a little bit differently this morning. But, you know, you imagine them, they, they've got nothing to eat, and the disciples just wanted them to get something to eat, but Jesus wanted the disciples to feed them. And they had found, we, we learned from Mark, that it was a little boy's five loaves and two fish, and, and they stole some little kid's lunch, essentially, to, to try to present that to Jesus, like, but what's this going to do? And, but thinking even about this amount, which is more than they would have had, this amount of food, and taking it and feeding 20,000 people. I mean, it's just, it's just absurd, but... When you look at it in the context of what's going on, I think Jesus may have actually thought they could have fed them with the five loaves. Maybe, I don't know, that's just my conjecture. But the apostles had just returned from their trip where they had cast out demons and they had healed people and they'd done some miracles when they're out doing these things. And, and maybe they could have done this if they just had enough faith, but the disciples are notorious for not having enough faith yet. So maybe that's what Jesus had in mind when he said, you feed them. I don't know. But Jesus did want the disciples to feed them. We see that. You, you give them something to eat. So imagine yourself, one of the disciples, in the story, and Jesus says to you, uh, you see all these 20,000 people? You feed them. Right. Yeah, Jesus. Sounds like a great idea. Not your best idea today, but we'll, you, know, we'll, you're, you, are, you are human. We'll, we'll chalk it up. You give them something to eat. This event is significant because it actually becomes a symbol that, that's going to be used in the Last Supper. It's, it's what kind of starts off the, the references to the breaking of bread. And, and actually the breaking of bread becomes a symbol that the disciples recognize Jesus by after the resurrection. The, the breaking of the bread is something that takes place before and after. And, and this, this breaking of the bread is, a, is a, really, a really symbolic event that we need to pay attention to. It's how they recognize Jesus. But what, when we tie this whole text together, 
When we, when we look at the feeding of the 5,000 and we look at the call to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, there are some points that I want to draw out as we, as we connect them all together. First thing I want to notice is that, that salvation comes by losing, not saving. We, we think about the idea of God saving our lives, but we don't actually receive salvation until we lose our lives. We think, we think that, that we can kind of hold on to our life and, and at the same time receive God's salvation, God's gift of grace, without really having to give anything up. But just like salvation only came through the breaking of Christ's flesh, which is what this was going to symbolize when we get to the Last Supper and he's going to, and he's going to break the bread and he's going to give it to the disciples and say, this is my flesh broken for you, given for you. Eat in remembrance of me. Salvation came through the breaking of Christ's flesh. It's only because his flesh was broken and torn to shreds that we actually have the offer of salvation. So salvation comes by losing, not saving. We can't, we can't save our lives and lose them too. The only way to find life, Christ's life, the life that he wants to give us as this free gift is to actually die to ourselves. The only way to find life is to die to what we think life is about. So Jesus then had the, had the disciples arrange these people, 20,000 people into groups of 50, 100, 150, maybe 200 at the most, I don't know. But, but groups of 50, we'll just use that for one. That's about how many are gathered here in the room this morning. We have about 50 of us. Jim, have you counted how many are in here? Just under 50. Good. So hopefully we have enough rolls. About 48 rolls. And if we don't have enough, Jesus is actually going to have to do a miracle this morning and provide some more. Maybe I should have bought more, and then we would have had more show up. Maybe that's my lack of faith for the morning. But. So the disciples organize the people into groups of 50, and then, and then they've got the five loaves and two fish. But imagine even five loaves and two fish for a meal. So maybe half of one roll of, of rolls is what we got, and we've we got to feed 50 people. Still, even, even in a smaller group, it's still not going to be enough, let alone 100, let alone 5,000. By the way, Elisha did a similar miracle in the Old Testament where, where he fed out of uh, bread that he gave and gave and gave, but it was only for 100 people, not 5,000. But when, one thing I think we can, we can draw out of this is that in our hands, what we have, when it's in our hands... It, it never looks like it's quite enough. It never looks like it's going to measure up. And I don't know if that was one of the points from Becky's talk. I hope I didn't, I'm not stepping on her toes. But in our hands, what we have never looks like enough. And as long as it stays in our hands, under our control, it never will be enough. But when we take that and we give it to Jesus and put our life in God's hands, then he can multiply it. When we're holding on to it and when we're trying to save our life so that we can have life, then what we're doing is we're restricting what God can do because we haven't actually given our lives over to him so he can do what only God can do with it. 
I think this is why this is all tied together to really help make a picture of what it means to be a disciple. In our hands, what we have to offer never looks like enough. But when we put it, put what we have in God's hands, he multiplies it. So Jesus, taking five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. In Scripture, the number five often symbolizes God's grace. So when you see the number five or five of this or five of that, sometimes you can, you can infer that, that uh, we're talking about God's grace or a symbol or a metaphor, or illustration of God's grace. And I think that's what's happening here. When you get the whole picture, you'll, you'll understand. And, and so Jesus takes these five loaves of grace and then breaks them. The bread had to be broken before it could be multiplied. Jesus, Jesus was breaking the bread and giving it out, not, not giving out whole loaves. Jesus gave thanks and looked up to heaven and gave thanks and broke the bread and gave out the bread. And so, so get that picture, five loaves of bread, five loaves of grace, and Jesus handing out grace through the disciples. And Jesus could have, if he wanted to, if he chose to, he could have taken the bread and just given it to the people himself, but he chose to work through the disciples to to give the disciples the bread and then to have them distribute the bread to the people. And what does it say? It says that everyone ate and was satisfied. When you look into that word satisfied, I I looked it up. It actually, the picture of it, uh, sorry to say, references cattle who have been eating out in the pasture and have eaten and are satisfied. And if you've ever raised cattle or worked with cattle, you know that they'll go out and they'll eat all day long until they get to a point where they're full, and then they'll kind of lay down and chew the cud, which is really disgusting. We won't get into the details of that. But, but that's what it means to be satisfied. And so, so this picture of satisfied is that the people ate to a point where they were, they were full. They were satisfied like cattle after grazing all day. And not only were the people satisfied, but, but after the people had eaten to a point that they were satisfied, the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. How many disciples were there? Twelve, and they picked up twelve basketfuls of leftovers. Twelve is another number that has some symbolism in Scripture. It's another number that represents completion, specifically when it comes to God's kingdom. So there were twelve tribes of Israel, and those were the twelve sons that became the twelve tribes of Israel. And then there were twelve disciples that Jesus picked, and and these would become the ones who would lay the foundation for for God's kingdom. And we see that they're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that that they become the foundation. So 12 also symbolizes completion in God's kingdom. And then the disciples go out and they pick up 12 basketfuls of grace. 12 basketfuls of grace, the the perfect amount, the, the right amount, the complete amount. When what they started with wouldn't have even filled one basket, they picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. So it not only satisfied the needs of the multitude, but there was enough left over for a sermon illustration. 
And I think the significance of this is that this is showing how God's grace is going to work. This is how God's grace is going to work. Jesus would be broken. His body would be broken for the people, right? That's, that's what would happen on the cross. He would be crucified. He would be beaten. He would be whipped. His flesh would be broken and torn to shreds. He would be broken for the grace, of, for the salvation of people. And his one body, even though he was only one person, his one body would become the pathway to grace for all of humanity. His body would be multiplied billions and billions of times. And we are the recipients of that grace. We receive the grace that, that fills the basket. See, instead of our own righteousness, our own attempts at righteousness, where we, you imagine maybe the basket represents righteousness and grace and all that's required to be righteous in God's eyes. I don't know if that's what it is, but I'm just guessing maybe that could be what it represents. Our righteousness, we take the five loaves and the two fish and we, and we put them in the basket and we just hope that it's going to be enough. Is it going to be enough? Is it going to be enough? Maybe I need to do a little more good, a little more good. I need to work a little harder, be a little bit more righteous. And maybe my bucket, my basket will be full. But, but Jesus, through his work on the cross fills our basket to the full, to the point of completion. This is how God's grace works. But there's another picture here. Salvation doesn't only require Jesus' death. Jesus' death isn't the only death necessary for our salvation. That's kind of where we want to stop. I like that part of the story, Jesus dying on the cross. I like that part of the story, Jesus doing something for me. I like that part of the story where Jesus loved me so much, where God the Father loved me so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for me. I really like that part of the story, that, that I am so loved that, that, that Jesus would give his life to purchase my salvation, to save my soul, to give me the life that he created me to have, to, to redeem me out of what I was born into so that he could release me into what he created me for. I really, I really like that part of the story. It makes me feel really good. But, but, but Jesus' death isn't the only death that's necessary for our salvation. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily. This is, he says this just after he talked about how he was going to die. He was going to go and suffer at the hand of the elders, and he would be murdered, executed, and then raised to life on the third day. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple is going to have to do the same thing. I kind of like the first part a little better than the second part. God, to be able to do something with our lives, we have to give it to him first. If we want God to do something with our lives, if we want God to take our lives and do something with it only God can do, we actually have to let him have it. I think this is a great struggle that we face 
in the world today. We don't, we don't really want to give God our lives. We want, we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to have salvation and, and get our life at the same time. But if God's going to ever do something with our lives, we have to really give them to him first. We've got to give it to him. We've got to lay it down. We actually have to take the bread out of our hands and put it into his hands and let him break it and do something with it that only he can do. And I think there's two mistakes that, 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 that are going on in the church today and in the world today. Mistake number one is this, is that, is that we're willing to go God's way if God is willing to go our way. We're willing to go God's way as long as God is willing to go our way. And so, so, okay, Jesus, I'll take your gift of salvation, but as long as your gift of salvation means that I get to go this direction with my life, I'm good. As long as you tell me to go the direction I'm already headed, the way I'm already pointed, I'm good. But as soon as you tell me to go somewhere else and go in a different direction, I'm out. See, we're willing to give our bread to Jesus as long as we get to tell Jesus what to do with our bread. That, by the way, is what bread is representing in this story. It's life. Jesus is the bread of life. That's, that's what's being represented, this life that God wants to give us, life that only comes through laying our lives down. Mistake number one, we're willing to, give, we're willing to go God's way if he's willing to go our way. This is another mistake, is that we go our own way and try to make it look like God's way. There were 12 disciples that passed out the bread. Do you know who one of those 12 disciples was that passed out the bread? Judas. Can you imagine somebody like Judas participating in a miracle like this? The 12 disciples participated in this miracle. They they were giving out the bread. They took the bread that Jesus was breaking and gave it to the people so that they could eat. So Judas was taking and participating in this miracle and all the other miracles that Jesus had done, and all the thousands of healings, and, and, and in the end, what did he do? He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It, seem, it seems like totally insane. How could, how could you participate in stuff like this but never really actually follow Jesus? It's unfathomable to us. How could you betray Jesus, Judas? I mean, come on. But is it really that hard to understand? Is it really that difficult? Do we follow Jesus until it costs us too much and then we cash out? Do we follow Jesus up to a point and then, and then once that point costs us too much, once the point that, that Jesus has asked us to take this next step, once the cost gets too high, we cash out for 30 pieces of silver? We talk a lot here about walking humbly with God and that walking humbly with God is not trying to get God to walk our way, but walking with God wherever he leads us. See, I, I, that's a mistake that we make is that, is that we, we, we want to go our own way and we try to make it look like God's way. I think most people who saw Judas following Jesus would have believed that he was one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of the 12, right? I mean, he's listed as one of the 12. Most people would have looked at Judas and said he's a disciple. He, he's following. None of the disciples seem to be on him, onto him as, as a betrayer at the Last Supper. 
you get that in the, in the story that, that, that when Jesus looked at Judas and said, what you have to do now, do it quickly, the rest of the disciples just seem to be oblivious to what's going on. So even those who are closest to Jesus, even those, the other 11 disciples that were following Jesus, they were his disciples, they were closest to Judas and closest to Jesus and closest to one another, they didn't seem to pick up on what was going on. But Judas was always going his own way. He was always going his own way, trying to make it look like he was going God's way, but he was always going his own way. Do we do the same? Do, do we go on our own way and try to make it look like it's God's way? Like, like we're in... We're in, and we, we kind of got the show, we, we got the persona, we've got the lingo, we've, we've got all this stuff figured out to make it sound like and look like we're in, but we're not really in it for God, we're in it for ourselves and looking for an opportunity to cash out. Have we really turned ourselves over into God's hands to let him do whatever he would with our lives? I wrestled with this one because it's a hard teaching. I know this feels heavy. It's hard for me. I, I'm not perfect at this by any means. And, and uh, you know, as, as your pastor, I, I come up short on a weekly basis. But this next one, this next point that Jesus makes is a hard one that I didn't want to teach. I, I was about to teach it for a while, a, a few months back, and then decided, no, it's too harsh, it's too direct. It's, it says, what it says is too difficult. And so I, I, I moved away from it at the time. I wasn't courageous enough to say it, I guess. Maybe it wasn't the right time. But maybe Jesus wanted to say it no matter what, and so he put it right here in the middle of Luke. But he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What does being ashamed have to do with anything in this story? I know it feels heavy, it's a, hard, it's a hard thing to think about, but are we ashamed of Jesus? I know it's, in, our, in our day and age, it's really unpopular to be a Christian, right? It's really unpopular to be a Jesus follower. The, 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 the relational collateral that can be done by, by saying that you're a follower of Jesus Christ can be high. It can be quite high now. To, to say, I, I stand with Jesus, it can cost us a lot. But are we kind of flirting? Are we in danger of getting too close to this line where it's going to cost us too much and so we don't want to say that we're really with Jesus? Like... I, I'm, well, I'm not, I'm with Jesus, but I'm not with that Jesus. Right? I, I'm with Jesus, but I'm not with the Jesus that you think of when you think about Jesus. I'm with Jesus. It's a much nicer, more, you know, loving Jesus. And than, than, he doesn't really say anything is ever wrong, you know. So he, he just, do we kind of just kind of creep up to the line? And, and But then when, when it's going to cost us too much, 
kind of shrink back. Like, well, this, this might cost me my relationship with this person. If they, if they really know that, I, that I'm a Jesus follower, if they really know that I'm a disciple of Jesus, then if I, if I take this next step, I might lose it all. I, mean, I might lose everything with them. And, and so we let the cost of potentially losing the relationship outweigh the cost of their eternity. And I think this is what Jesus would say, if you're ashamed of me, if you're not willing to, to take that step, as awkward as it may be, as high as the cost may be, then what you should have done to yourself, I'm going to do to you when I return. What you should have done is denied yourself. The word literally means disown yourself. You should have denied yourself, disowned yourself, and, and followed me. But because you were ashamed of me, because you wouldn't follow me wherever I led you, when I return, the Son of Man will disown you. It's a hard, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's, that's a heavy, it's a heavy teaching. It's, it's like, can we, I mean, can we just skip over that verse? Can't we just, you know, maybe, maybe just read it really quick and then move on? But, but I think it all ties together. It brings, brings it all together. And I think, I think the reason that it's put here is because this is, this is the caliber of Christianity that Christ designed us for. We, were, we weren't designed for a, a mediocre kind of Christianity where, where we're able to kind of skate through life and, and hopefully get to the end and receive our gift of salvation without offending too many people along the way and without, without telling too many people about God's grace along the way. That's the, that's the version a lot of us, I think, have settled for, but that's not really the version of Christianity. He, he wanted us to have a higher caliber of Christianity, and, and, and when, when you have that escape hatch, there's always that 30 pieces of silver that can pull you back, right? There, there's always that way out, like, okay, that, I'm just not going to go that far. I'll, I'll just kind of get right up to the edge of the line without crossing the line. But if we're going to be his disciples, we actually have to follow him. And if we're going to follow him, we, we have to follow him where he went. And where he went was to the cross. Where he went with his life was, was to give his life as a ransom for many. Where he went with his life was to lay his life down so that others could receive love and grace and salvation. And it's like where Jesus talks about when he was going to die, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But, but if it dies, then it produces a harvest 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. See, we, we, want to, we want to hold on to our seed, and we might even put our seed in the ground, but we're going to keep holding on to it. 
maybe bury it in the dirt a little bit. But we still got it in our hands. As long as it's in our hands, God can't do what he wants to do with it. Have we really, really actually turned our lives over to Jesus? Have we really given complete control of our life over to Jesus and, and said, break me? Break me and distribute me to whoever needs it. Break, break me and, and use me however you see fit. Take my life, break it, and, and distribute it to whoever needs your grace through my life. See, see Jesus said that, that whoever wants to be his disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. But I think we've tended more towards denying our neighbors, taking up our comforts, and pursuing our dreams. I think that's why Jesus said, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Jesus could have fed everyone if he wanted to. He was, he's done all of these miracles. He could have just made bread appear in their laps if he wanted to. That's who he was. And, but he said, you give them something to eat. He, he intentionally chose to include the disciples in the process of feeding 5,000 people. Why? Why would he do that? Why, is, why would Jesus tell them to give them something to eat? Well, if you look at the bread as life or you look at the bread as grace, he's saying, he's saying, you give them grace. You give them life. You pass it out. I'm going to invite the elders to come up. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. This feels weird, I know. You give them something to eat. <laughs> Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it as he looked up to heaven. And then the disciples took it out and, and passed it out. Sorry, this is not gluten-free bread. I'm going to need one of these. Why include the disciples? especially when it looks like the disciples didn't have any grace to give. It didn't appear as though the disciples brought much to the table. It didn't appear as though they had much to bring. But Jesus did. Jesus had something to offer. Jesus had something that he wanted to give. And, and even though he was the one providing the grace, he let the disciples distribute the grace to the people. 
Even though Jesus was the one who took the bread and broke it, and then as he broke it, he continued to pass it out and pass it out and pass it out. Jesus was the one providing the grace. He, he was using the disciples to distribute the grace. You see, we can't, we can't save anybody, and I know that can be frustrating for people who like to save people, and I've been in that boat where it's like, I, I would really like to bring salvation to you. We can't, but we can't do that. We, it's not ours to do for someone else. We can't save someone else's soul from eternal separation. But God wants to use us to give the people around us grace. God wants to use all of us to, to give the people around us his grace, his life, his, his hope, his peace. He wants to use us to give them grace. God wants to use you, every single one of us in this room. God wants to use us to give the people in our lives something to eat. You give them something to eat. He wants to use you to, to give the people in your life that don't have grace, that have never tasted of his grace, for you to give them grace. He wants to use you to give the people in your life grace. Like we said, the, the bread kind of represents life. It represents the, the quantity of it was number five, you know, five loaves represents grace. The red, the bread represents life. In your hand, you hold bread that can represent your life. Seems ridiculous, but picture your life in your hands. Are we going to give it away to Jesus and say, here's my life? But you can only use it in this way. Here, you can have my life, Jesus, but, but this is what you can do with it. And uh, if this isn't what you're going to do with it, then I'd rather hold on to it for myself. Or, or are we going to kind of hold on to it and, and smash it a little bit? Manipulate it, twist it around some, make it look like, like Jesus broke it. Like, you, you, I mean, can't you tell that Jesus taken my life and broken it? Doesn't it look like, like Jesus broke it? We're going to kind of play the game a little bit and... Or are we going to really give it to Jesus and say, my heart is yours, my life is yours, everything I am is yours, take it all, and do whatever you want with it. And then we, we give it to him and, and we let him break it. And and we let him then take a little bit of our life from here and, and then well, we can give it to this person and, and this person can eat. They can be fed. They can experience God's grace. And, and then this person, God, can take our life and, and he can distribute 
his grace to this person through our life. And, and, and this amazing thing happens. You see, when you've got it in your hands, it's only one role. It's only one life that you can only do with so much with it. But, but when you put it in Jesus' hands, it's like those five loaves. Like, like he keeps breaking it, and, and it feels like at some point you've got to run out of life. Right? At some point I'm going to run out of the ability to give people you know, what God has given me to give them. But if God is the one breaking you, then God is the one giving through you. And so he just keeps giving, and, and he keeps giving, and he keeps giving, and he keeps giving, and he keeps giving. And through our lives, he gives grace upon grace upon grace. To deny yourself means to disown yourself. To take up your cross daily means to lay down your life for the good of others, just like Jesus laid down his life for others. And to follow Jesus means to walk humbly with God, not trying to make God walk with us. Jesus laid down his life. And with his life, purchased salvation for all who would believe. Belief is giving God the whole role. Do with it whatever you want. I'm yours. Take it all. When I ask the guys to come back up and let's pass out the grape juice as well. As you're holding that in your hands, you don't have to do this. But I would encourage you while you're holding that in your hands to take it and break it. Split it in two. And let it remind us that, that God wants to take our lives and break it just like he broke that bread. And he wants to distribute it. So if you will, if you just take your bread and break it and, and let it be this picture that, that God wants to take your life and break it. And he wants to continue to break it and continue to break it and continue to break it so that he can, through your life, give grace and life to the people around you. And this might be kind of weird, and I don't know, it might get really gross, but you might want to hold on to that other half. You might want to take that other half home and, and put it somewhere where you can see it and just let it sit there for a while. Just let it sit out on the counter, maybe put it in your car, although it'll, it'll take longer in your car because it's cold, but um, just put it in, just see what, just take that, take that piece of bread and, and just leave it sitting there and see what happens. See what happens when, when you try to hold on to your life when you when you try to keep your life when you try to when you try to keep your life in your hands see what happens when when you just try to hold on to it i think you all know what's going to happen but it would be really fun to to have you guys actually do that and take pictures and post them on workplace and just just see what happens to 
the bread after you just hold on to it and don't give it out. Maybe that'll help us remember. We're all going to die anyway. Did you know that? How many people have not died? Ever? Well, in the history of humanity... God always gives us a shad, doesn't he? (laughs) Elijah got caught up. Who else? Enoch? Anyone else? So I would say the percentages are pretty high that we're all going to die. Are we going to die holding on to our bread trying to keep it for ourselves? Or do we, do we die now? Do we choose to die now so that we can actually receive the real life that we were designed for? Do we, do we die to ourselves now? Do we, do we deny ourselves, disown ourselves, take up our cross and, and follow Jesus daily? Do, do, we, do we do that and actually finally die to who we think we are and all the things that we've got put together and all of our attempts at righteousness and, and all the things that we think we can do? And, and from our brokenness that sin gives us, we think we can tell God how he ought to live our lives instead of letting God break us so that he can actually put our lives back together how we wanted it to be. What if we just died to ourselves now and, and we just let God take our lives and give life, give life, give life, give life, and we weren't ashamed or afraid because we know that God's love conquers it all. The next time Jesus breaks bread in the story is going to be on the night before. Well, there's another feeding of 4,000. I'm not quite sure of the order, but he'll take the bread the night before he's going to be crucified, and he's sitting around sharing the Passover meal with the disciples. And it would have been unleavened bread. This is leavened bread, but unleavened bread, and he would have taken it and broke it. Pass it to his disciples and say, as often as you eat of this, eat in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Took too big of a bite. I'm always biting off more than I can chew. And he would take the cup, the fourth cup, that had a meaning connected to the Passover and the Exodus and being set free from slavery, and he would change its meaning and make a new covenant, which is a promise 
for relationship and, and how relationship works between two people in this covenant, an eternal covenant that cannot be broken, and God always keeps his promises, and he would make a new covenant with us, and that covenant would be purchased with his blood. He would pay for that blood with his life. He would give every last drop of his blood on that cross to purchase this covenant, this relationship, that we could have this relationship, this life that we were created and designed for. He would take it and pour it all out. Pour it all out. And he took the cup of wine and he passed it around to his disciples and said, as often as you drink of this, do it in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to give you a chance to respond. We've already taken communion, so we won't stop between the next couple of songs. So the ushers, after we sing this song, during the next song, we invite the ushers to come up and take the offering. Can you imagine what God could do through a church like ours? If we truly just completely laid down our lives and let him do whatever he wanted with them. If instead of holding something back for ourselves and holding on to something so that we can kind of keep some kind of control, we just gave the whole thing over and said, do with it what you want. Can, can you imagine if we did that every single day, if, if, if instead of doing it on Sunday when it's convenient, we also did it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and every morning we woke up and we denied ourselves, we disowned ourselves, and we took up the cross and laid down our lives. We made a habit and a practice of all day, every day, laying down our lives for the good of others. And, and we just walked with God and followed Jesus and went wherever he wanted us to go. And we followed him wherever he led us. We just, we just went with Jesus everywhere we went. We followed Jesus. And when Jesus told us to do this, to talk to this person, to pray for this person, to love this person, when he told us to do it, we just did it. What would that do? What would that change, not only in our lives, but through our lives? How would it radically alter this community? Could this not be the thing that is holding so many of us up in, in the church today, is that we, we just want to hold on to our lives. We don't really want to lay it down. We want, to, we want the free gift of God's salvation without paying our own life in the process. What would it look like if, if we just said, you know what, I, I'm denying myself, I'm disowning myself, I'm dying to myself, and, and I'm giving the whole thing over to God. God, it's all yours. My, my heart is yours. My life is yours. Take it all. It's all in your hands. Do with it what you can. Take it and spread it and distribute it and pass it out to as many people who can be touched by it. Take my life and give life. Take your life and through my life give life to the people around me who need your life. God, it's yours. Do with it what you please. I let go of control. What would it do? How would it change? More importantly, who would it change? Who would receive life?
Let's stand together. Father, thank you for this indescribable gift. As hard as this is to wrap our minds around, Father, I pray that you help us to see the fullness of what you're asking us to do. Father, help us to, to, to deny ourselves, to disown ourselves, to, to stop looking to ourselves to be the source of everything and to provide our own path to righteousness, our own works-based salvation. Father, help us to, to deny that, to die to that, to, to let that just be crucified, be put to death, that we might receive your actual life, your actual grace, your actual truth, your actual peace, your actual hope, that we might actually put those things behind us that we've claimed and tried to achieve on our own and just receive the gift that you want to give us. Father, help us to, to lay all of that down and just open up our, our, our arms and our eyes and our mouths and our minds and just receive what you so desperately want to give us, the life you designed us for. And Father, let us not stop there with, with receiving it for ourselves, but to understand the full picture of what it means to be your follower is to actually be broken and broken and broken and broken and broken and broken so that others might also receive this gift of life. Help us to be that kind of people to be that kind of church, to be the kind of church that passionately go after Jesus. We follow Jesus with our whole heart, with our whole mind, with our whole soul, with our whole strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves because that is the life that you've brought up in us, and we've died to all the other stuff. Thank you for, for all of these amazing, wonderful people who are made in your image. Thank you for the blessing that they are to me. Thank you for the blessing to have been able to serve here for six years. Thank you for those who have been here for the whole journey and who have been faithful through that. Thank you for those who have just joined us recently and those who are going on this journey with us. Father, I pray at this moment, that you would just pour out a blessing on us that, that we cannot explain, that we cannot really understand, but that you just pour out a blessing on us that, that we walk out of this place so blessed by the love and the grace and the goodness of God that we cannot help but share it and love it and give it to the people around us and help us to do it with courage, to step across that line with faith and with boldness and to be willing to go out there and say, I love you, and because I love you, there's someone who loved you so much that he gave his life for me, and I'm willing to lay down everything so that you might know about him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.